0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who loves us and a God who desires to reveal yourself to us through your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us open hearts and open ears. Lord, that we would hear and understand and receive everything you have for us today. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you have ever had the experience of being drawn in by a great sales pitch and you ended up buying something That was a terrible product. Like the sales pitch was awesome. The marketing was great. But the product, when you got it, was not very good. Well, when that happens, we tend to have a feeling which we call buyer's remorse, right? It's that feeling you have when you buy something and it does not live up to the sales pitch. It doesn't live up to the marketing that the thing had with it. I've had that experience. Probably you have too. It reminds me of this friend of mine. I was talking to him this week. He was telling me about a time when he had buyer's remorse. He said he went to buy a used car, right? And so he goes to the used car lot, and he had a particular car in mind that he wanted to buy at the car lot. But as he's talking to the salesman, the salesman ends up kind of giving him this sales pitch and convincing him to buy a different car that was a brand he didn't really trust. And it wasn't the car that he had originally intended to buy, but this salesman gave him such a great sales pitch that he ended up buying the car. Well, the car turned out to be a total lemon, like huge mistake. And he said the first clue he had that this was a huge mistake was when he was driving out of the lot, he looked in his rear view mirror, and he could see the salesman who just sold him the car. And the salesman was giving another salesman like a giant high five. Like he was just way too excited about this. And this guy was like, oh no, that's not a good sign. Like when the salesman is that excited about selling me this car. Well, when it comes to matters of faith and following Jesus, here's a question for us. It's an important question. How can we be sure that we are following and believing something that is true? And it's not just something that we've been talked into. It's not just something that we got a really good sales pitch or like a really convincing speaker that caused us to believe, but it's actually true and it really is from God. How can we know that? Well, that's what Paul's going to talk about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he's going to show us that the gospel— is not something that was invented by people, nor is it something that any of us would have ever come up with or could have ever come up with on our own. Rather, it is something that was revealed to us by God, and it is the message of what Jesus did for us. And when it's received by faith, it has the power to actually transform you at the very core of your being. The title of today's message is Human Weakness and the power of God. Human weakness and the power of God. And our sentence for today, our summary sentence, which is your takeaway truth, I'd love for you to write it down. It's going to be our outline for the message today, and it sums up the main thrust or point of this passage, and here's what it is. The good news of the gospel is that what we are unable to do in our human weakness, God has done for us through Jesus, revealing himself to us and transforming us into new creations. Now we're going to repeat that throughout the service. As we break it down, it's going to be our outline for our study today. So we'll keep it up on the screen for you to write it down, but let's begin by looking at the first part of that. The good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel. Well, here in 1 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle is writing a letter to a church that was plagued by divisions. There were factions forming in the church, and those factions were fighting with one another. It wasn't healthy, it wasn't good, it wasn't the way of Jesus or the heart of God some of the divisions in the Corinthian church were caused by a lack of truth. There was a lack of truth. In other words, there were things that need to be addressed and resolved through clear biblical teaching. But on the other hand, some of the problems weren't the result of a lack of truth. They were the result of a lack of grace, right? There's plenty of truth, but there was a lack of grace. There was a sense of arrogance or a sense of pride, a sense of unforgiveness in some cases, an unwillingness to forgive. And so here in this letter, Paul is making a passionate appeal that as followers of Jesus, we would be full of both grace and and truth. That's why this is the title for our series. And here at the beginning of this letter, Paul is calling the Corinthian Christians to set aside their divisions and be united around the message of the gospel. And here's why. Because the gospel unites us both in our identity and in our mission as followers of Jesus. Our identity and our mission. It brings unity in those things. Well, in our study last time, We looked at the end, the latter half of chapter one. And there in the second part of chapter one, we saw that Paul told us what this message of the gospel is. He said the message of the gospel, it is the message of the cross. It is the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so knowing that, now Paul begins chapter two by saying this in verse one. He says, when I came to you brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It was Paul the Apostle himself who had founded this church in the Greek city of of Corinth. And he did it on his second missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts chapter 16 through 18. And, and you, the part where he comes to Corinth is specifically found in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. But if you read there in the book of Acts about that second missionary journey, what you'll see is that right before Paul went to Corinth, he was in another great Greek city, the city of Athens. That's in chapter 17 of the book of Acts. And we read there that as Paul was in Athens, there in Acts chapter 17, we read how he went up to this place called the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the place where the philosophers in Athens used to gather to discuss their philosophies and debate their ideas. It was kind of like Speaker's Corner, right? It was this place where anybody could go, and anybody would be given a few minutes to give a speech or share an idea, and it would be considered by the crowd. In our day, it would be more similar to like TEDx conventions, right? Where anybody can go and give a speech about whatever topic they want, and they're given a few minutes to talk about it. Well, Paul went up there to this speaker's corner up at the Areopagus where the philosophers were gathered, and there we read in Acts 17 that he gave an impassioned speech about God, and he spoke eloquently, and he spoke convincingly, and some people even responded to the message. They responded to the gospel. But here's what's interesting. Everywhere that Paul went, his goal was to start a church and leave a church behind before he left. But in Athens, as far as we know, No church was ever started. Some people responded to the gospel, but no church was ever founded there by Paul in Athens during his missionary journey. And so here's what's interesting. When Paul left Athens and came to Corinth, the next place he went, we read here in chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. Paul says that he made a conscious decision. He purposefully chose to talk about Jesus differently in Corinth then he had talked about Jesus in Athens. Look at what he says in verse two. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, he made this conscious decision to focus his attention while he was there in Corinth on this message. Jesus Christ And him crucified. Now, here's why that's interesting. Because if you look, go back and check in Acts 17, that's your homework. Some of you can turn there now if you like. Look at Acts chapter 17 at the message that Paul preached to the philosophers in Athens. And here's what you're going to notice. He says a lot of really good things, but you know what he doesn't say? He never mentions the name of Jesus, and he never mentions the cross. He never mentions the fact that Jesus was crucified. Well, why, why would he not mention the name of Jesus or the fact that Jesus was crucified? Well, do you remember what we read in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians in our last study? We read this, and Paul said, the message of the cross is foolishness in the ears of the Greeks. It's foolishness to the Greeks. It sounds ridiculous to them. You see, the Greeks, they thought that the way to connect with the divine was through higher thinking. And they thought that spirituality was something that was detached from this physical world. It was something abstract. So to the Greeks, the idea that the way to have eternal life, the way to be made right with God, was through the death of a crucified Jew, that sounded to them absolutely ridiculous. And Paul knew this about the Greek people. He knew that this was their proclivity or their propensity. And so knowing this about the Greek people and their sensibilities, it seems that when he was there in Athens, the Mecca of Greek philosophy and education, he tried to kind of speak their language, if you will, and he tried to avoid saying things that he knew would be hard for them to digest. If you look at that speech there in Acts chapter 17, here's what you'll notice. Paul mentions that God appointed a man, but he doesn't mention that that man's name was Jesus. Why? Jesus is a very Jewish name, and the Greek people thought themselves to be superior to the Jews. So he avoids the name of Jesus. Here's the other thing he does. He mentions the resurrection, but he doesn't mention how Jesus died, that he died on a cross. Now, uh, that's This is not to say that Paul didn't preach the gospel in Athens. He absolutely did, but he did it in a way that you could say he kind of tiptoed around the things that he knew would be difficult for the Greek people to accept or digest, the things that they would consider ridiculous or foolish. And yet, here's what's interesting. Even though Paul, there in Athens, gave this very careful presentation of the gospel, most of the people who heard him that day, they said, Oh, okay, cool story, bro. And they went on and they never thought about it again. They just didn't care. And so when Paul came to Corinth after leaving Athens, what he's telling us here in verse two is that he decided that he's now going to take a different approach in Corinth to preaching than he did in Athens. Rather than trying to tiptoe around the parts of the gospel that the Greek people might find foolish or ridiculous, instead he says, you know what? When I came to Corinth, I decided, you know what? I'm just gonna preach it. Just straightforward, man. It's just gonna be Christ and him crucified. And if people think that's foolish, well then whatever, so be it. You see, Paul understood that his job was not to make people believe by being an eloquent speaker or a good talker, right? His job was merely to present the message and do it clearly, to present it and make it clear. Later on in this chapter, here's why. Paul is going to explain something to us. He's going to explain that his only by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, that a person can understand spiritual truth and be transformed by God. So he understood it wasn't his job to talk people into believing in Jesus. His job was to present the message and make it clear And then the rest was up to the Holy Spirit to take that powerful message and make it come alive in the hearts of his hearers. And I'll just tell you this. This is a really important message for you and me to hear and understand. And actually, it's a huge relief. You know why? Because sometimes people tell me, they say, you know, I want to talk about the Lord with my friends. I want to share my faith. I just don't know how. I'm not sure that I would say the right things. I kind of stumble over my words. Here's the good news. It's not up to you to talk people into believing in Jesus. It doesn't depend on you and your words. Here's your job. Make it clear. Make it understandable. Simplicity and clarity. That's the goal. The rest is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that takes a huge burden off of you. That's true. All you have to do is speak it clearly and simply. And that's why Paul says this in verse 3. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. In other words, I didn't come with bravado and great speaking. I came in weakness and fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but they were in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. When Paul came to Corinth, he didn't come as a philosopher, and he didn't come as a salesman. He came as a witness. Do you remember? That's what Jesus called us to be, isn't it? Witnesses to the ends of the earth. You know what a witness does? They give testimony. Think about a witness on a witness stand. What do they do? They testify to what happened. And that's what Jesus called us to do as well. Paul was not a salesman for Jesus. He was an ambassador for Christ. And there's a really big difference. He wasn't a salesman for Jesus. He was an ambassador for Christ. In other words, here's the difference. He knew that he didn't have to manipulate people into making a a decision for Jesus. He didn't want to manipulate people into making a decision for Jesus. Rather, he wanted to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel itself. And here's why. He tells us in verse 5. He says, here's why. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't want your faith to rest in my clever speaking or in any of my ideas. I want your faith to rest in the power of God. You see, a salesperson might be might be inclined sometimes, in order to make a sale, they might be inclined to sometimes withhold certain information if they thought that if you knew that information, you wouldn't buy the thing. Or, on the other hand, they might be inclined to tell you what they think you want to hear in order to close the deal. And you know what? Sometimes churches do this, right? Sometimes churches do this, or or we'll do this when we evangelize, right? We'll think that we need to use tricks or gimmicks to get people in the door, or we might avoid using certain words, right? That like sin, or judgment, or hell, because they have negative connotations, and they make people feel uncomfortable. And so people will avoid talking about topics that the Bible talks about, topics that Jesus taught about, and they won't talk about that. They won't use certain words that the Bible uses out of fear that people will, you know, be uncomfortable by them. But you know what's interesting? Here's what's interesting. Jesus didn't do that. Did you, know, did you ever think about that? Jesus didn't do that. For example, did you know that Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven? You might say, hey, Jesus this isn't going to sell well, man. This is not a good marketing strategy, like talking more about hell. Maybe talk less about hell. Don't do that. It's not very popular, right? Here's another one. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, this is an interesting story. This man comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's like, wait, wait a Wait a second. Is Jesus trying to talk him out of following him? Because it kind of seems like he is, right? Like you would expect that Jesus would be like, oh, you want to follow me? Awesome. I've been hoping some people wanted to follow me. So here, sign this contract. Don't read it. Just sign it, right? There's some small print, but you don't need to worry about that. Just sign it. I'll tell you what it says later, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus is like, you want to follow me? Are you sure? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm homeless. And if you follow me, well, then you can be homeless too, right? And you're like, that is a terrible marketing strategy. That's not a great sales pitch. Or another time, a rich young man came to Jesus and he asked him, what must I do in order to earn eternal life? And what does Jesus say to him? Sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And it says that the young man went away sad because he was unwilling to give up all his possessions and follow Jesus. But Jesus didn't run after him and be like, no, 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 I was just calling your bluff, man. No, no, come back. It's okay. You don't really have to do that. No, it's like, whoa, wait a second. You would expect that Jesus would be like, bro, you don't need to do anything. Just, you know, give a nod to God, pray this prayer in the quietness of your heart, and you'll be good. But Jesus didn't do that. He could see that this man loved his possessions more than he loved God, and Jesus was calling him to let go of this thing that was hindering him from surrendering his life fully over to the Lord. Now, for some of you, maybe that's you today, and you know it. There's something in your life that is hindering you from surrendering to God completely. And I would tell you this. Jesus, if he was here, he would call you to let go of that thing and, uh, and follow him with your whole heart. But here's the point. Jesus wasn't a salesman who wanted to close the deal at any cost. Rather, he was a doctor who came to tell people the truth about their condition and to provide them with the cure. In the same way, Paul wasn't a salesman for Jesus, he was an ambassador for Christ. He didn't want to manipulate people into signing up to follow Jesus and he also wasn't there to entertain them as an interesting speaker. Rather, what Paul wanted was for people to be truly converted, truly converted. He wanted them to experience the power of God at work in their lives through the gospel and by the Holy Spirit. That's why he says there in verse 5, once again, he says, I want your faith to rest not in the wisdom of men, not in my speaking abilities, not in my ideas. I want your faith to rest in the power of God. What is the power of God that he's referring to here? You know what it is? It's the gospel. You know how I know that? Because in the previous chapter, which is part of the same discussion, right? Chapters one and two is part of the same discussion. Remember what he said there in chapter one, verse 18. He said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. So when Paul says, I want your faith to rest in the power of God, what he's saying is, I want your faith to be in the gospel, not in anything else. I want your faith to be in the gospel message of what Jesus has done for you, not in anybody's ability as a speaker or in human wisdom or ideas. Now let me say this. There's nothing wrong with being an interesting speaker, right? And there's nothing wrong with being smart okay? This isn't saying that we want to be like dumb for Jesus and proud of it, right? Look how dumb we are. Isn't it awesome, right? Uh, we don't also, it's not to say we want to be boring for Jesus because the boringer we are, the better it is, right? No, that's not the point. In fact, you know, I, I'm part of a group of, of pastors who coach young and new preachers in how to preach better. And one of the things I always tell them is this, don't make the Bible boring. And here's why. Because the Bible is not boring. And if you make it boring, that's your fault. It's not the Bible's fault. The Bible is the most interesting, profound, incredible, amazing book that's ever existed in the history of the world. If you make it boring, that's on you, right? That's not on the Bible. Your goal, it doesn't need to be to make it seem interesting. Your goal needs to be to help people see it for what it truly is, for the treasure, for the amazing, interesting thing that it actually is. And this is true for all of us, right? When you talk about the Bible with friends, family, coworkers, etc., you don't need to dress it up. You don't need to like make it seem more interesting than it is, right? You just need to help people see, see it for what it is, see it for the interesting, amazing thing it is and help them to understand the incredible things that it, God says to them in it. You see, but here's the problem. Some people actually do think that the Bible's boring. You know that? Some people do think that the Bible's boring, and therefore, they feel like it's their job to do something interesting to make up for the boringness of the Bible, right? They say, oh, the Bible's boring and irrelevant, therefore, we need to do something interesting so that people will be, you know, into it. And so they'll do things like this. They'll be like, this week's sermon is on eight ways to be happy or have your best life now or four steps to financial freedom. Or they'll find a popular TV show, right, like Modern Family. And they'll do like a a sermon series, Modern Family. And they'll like spend all week making, you know, funny video clips to show in the service. Or they'll do a gimmick to try and like lure people in the door, like free beer Sunday. Hey, come to church. We'll give you a free beer, right? And the problem with all these gimmicks is that they're based in the wisdom of the world, not in the power of God. Right? That's the problem with the gimmicks. The Bible, right? The power is in the Word of God. The power is not in the gimmicks. The power is in the gospel, not in the gimmicks, friends. You see, in the Greek culture, it it was a form of entertainment to go and listen to a speaker. So people would go and they, they wanted to listen to somebody who would wow them with their ideas, right? And blow their mind with something they'd never heard before. And they would walk away saying, wow, that guy was so smart and he was so funny and that was so entertaining. But Paul says, listen, I didn't come to entertain you. I didn't come to impress you. I came to give you the one message which actually has the power to change your life. I came to give you the message, the simple, profound message of the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why he says, when I was with you, I determined to preach nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. When I came to you, I didn't come to give you my opinions about Roman sports. I didn't come to give you my opinions about economic policy or this or that politician. I came to preach one message, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And friends, this is so central to who we are as a church here at Whitefields. Do you know that? A few years ago, we had somebody who was new to our church, and they have been coming for a few weeks, and then after a few weeks, they went up to one of our leaders after service, and they said this. They said, you know what? I noticed this thing, like that when that Nick guy, he's talking, right? Like no matter what passage of the Bible he's talking about, somehow at the end, he always brings it back to Jesus, and they were like, Yeah. No, that's exactly it. Like, we're doing that on purpose. That's our whole MO here at the church, right? That's what we do. And the reason is because the whole Bible is ultimately all about Jesus, and we want our lives to be all about Jesus. And so rather than gimmicks, rather than self-help tips and strategies, this is who we are as a church. We teach the Bible, and we preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Why? Because we don't want your faith to rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. In Paul's letters, you know what? Sometimes he asks his readers to pray for him when he opens his mouth and speaks about Jesus. And you know what he always says? He always asks for two things. Pray that when I open my mouth to talk about Jesus, that I would speak, number one, clearly, and number two, boldly. Those are some really good, simple goals. And I want to encourage you in your life this week, write it down. Make this your, your prayer for this week, right? Lord, help me that I would speak about Jesus boldly, but that I would also speak about him clearly. I don't need to wow people. I don't need to talk them into anything. I just need to preach it boldly and clearly. Ask God to help you do that. Those are good goals. That brings us to the next part of our sentence. The good news of the gospel is that what we are unable to do in our human weakness, God has done for us through Jesus. Verse 6, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. See, Paul has been contrasting the wisdom of the world with the power of the gospel. And what he tells us here is that the problem with the wisdom of this world is that it is doomed to pass away. In other words, it won't last and it doesn't work. The wisdom of this world seeks to do things which it's unable to accomplish. For example, much of the wisdom of the world in our day, today, has a lot to do with how to live a happy, fulfilled life, right? A meaningful, happy, fulfilled life. And yet, despite that, despite all of our efforts and all of our our attempts to tell people how to live fulfilled, happy lives, rates of depression are higher than they've ever been in the West, So here we are, in all of our wisdom, trying to be happy and fulfilled. And in the meantime, we're more depressed than we've ever been before. Here's another way. We're more connected than we've ever been before through the internet. More than ever before, we are connected. And yet, despite our wisdom and our ways of making, you know, getting rid of this problem of loneliness, you know what? People are more lonely than they've ever been in the history of the world. And here's another one. We have more access now With all of our, you know, wealth and everything like that, we have more access to things. We have more opportunities than we've ever had in the history of the world, and yet people still feel unfulfilled in their lives. In other words, the wisdom of this world is failing. It is not working. And statistics show that overwhelming, the overwhelming majority of people in the world do believe that there is a God. Did you know that? The majority, overwhelming majority of people in the world do believe that there's a God. But here's the thing. In our own wisdom, we've tried to come up with our own ways of thinking about God, right? Our own concept of God that feels good to us. Or we'll we'll try to figure out a way to fix the problems in us, right? How do we atone for the wrong things we've done? How do we get blessings in our lives, right? How do you get under the spout where the blessings come out, right? But all of us, in our supposed wisdom in these areas... We fall short, and it just reveals our shortcomings. It reveals our human weakness because we are unable to do these things. We're unable to be good enough. We're unable to be able to sufficiently atone for the wrong things that we've done. All of our vain efforts to do these things, they just reveal our human weakness. But look at what Paul says in verse 7. He says, But we impart secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What Paul is saying here is that God's wisdom is a mystery for human beings. The word mystery in the Bible, right, this idea of a secret thing, it it refers to something that isn't still a secret, right? Paul says, we proclaim it to you. It's no longer a secret. In other words, here's what it means. It means something that you would never have known if it hadn't been revealed to you. You would have never known if it hadn't been revealed to you. It's not something you could have come up with or figured out on your own. The only way you could know it is if it was revealed to you. That's why Paul says in verse eight, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of Glory. In other words, the reason why people crucified Jesus is because they didn't understand and they couldn't understand who He was and what God was doing through Him. But let me let me stop there and point out something to you at the end of verse eight. It's really small, but it's really important. Notice that Jesus, or sorry, Paul refers to Jesus as the Lord of Glory. Now that title is really important because that title is used in the Old Testament to refer to God, the Lord of glory. So think about what's happening here. Paul is using a title, which in the Bible is reserved only for God, and he's applying it to Jesus. Uh, It tells us that when what he's talking about here is this. Paul is saying that Jesus is God. And so when Jesus came and lived among us and died on the cross... That was God coming to us in order to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And friends, let me tell you this if God would do that for you, that means that He really loves you. But let's continue, verse 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, this verse is often used to talk about how great heaven is going to be, right? It's going to be so great. That there's nothing here on earth that you've ever seen or imagined that could even compare to it. And that's true. He said, the problem is that that's not what this verse is talking about. So that is true, but it's not what this verse is talking about. What is this verse talking about? Think about it. Look at it. He's talking about this revelation that God has given us, which is the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. He says, people in generations past, they couldn't have even imagined how great this salvation is that we have now received in Jesus. The Old Testament prophets, they had a vague idea of what God was going to do, but yet when Jesus came and what he did, it was so much bigger, so much grander, so much greater than anything they could have ever imagined or expected. And here's why. Because the good news of the gospel is that what we are unable to do in our human weakness, God has done for us, in Jesus. In our human weakness, we are unable to know God. We were unable to atone for our sins. In our human weakness, we were unable to attain true fulfillment and purpose and wisdom for life. In our human weakness, we were unable to earn God's favor and unable to attain eternal life. But what we were unable to do in our human weakness, God has done for us in Jesus. That brings us to the next part. The good news of the gospel is that we are unable to do what we were unable to do in our human weakness. God has done for us through Jesus. The first thing is revealing himself to us. Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit teaches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. See, what we know about God has been revealed to us by God himself. It wasn't discovered by the greatest scholars and the biggest brains out there in the world. It was revealed to us by God himself. That's what the Bible is. It's the record of God's revelation of himself to humanity. And the fullest of that revelation was the person of Jesus. In Jesus, God came to us. He spoke our language. He walked our streets. He lived our life in order to show us who He is, and in order to save us. And now, here's what's amazing, Paul tells us this, that God has placed His Spirit inside of you as a seal. You might remember from our Holy Spirit series, this is what's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit is inside of you, as God places His Spirit in you, Paul tells us here, God, by the Spirit, is leading you, guiding you, revealing God's thoughts to you and opening your eyes to understand spiritual truths to which you were previously blind and unable to see. And that brings us to the last part of our sentence. The good news of the gospel is that what we were unable to do in our human weakness, God has done for us through Jesus, revealing himself to us and, here's the thing, transforming us into new creations, He says in verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Here's what Paul's telling us. He's saying there are basically two kinds of people in this world. The natural person and the spiritual person. The natural person and the spiritual person. The natural person, that's our default setting, right? That's who we are apart from any intervention on the part of God in our lives, right? We're the natural person. And the only way to become the spiritual person is by, as Jesus said, being born again. And the reason is because, as Paul explains to us in Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, he explains to us there that we, in our natural state, are dead spiritually. We are dead spiritually, and as Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 2, we are blind spiritually spiritually. But here's the good news of the gospel. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away, and behold, new has come. Friends, listen, Jesus did not come to help bad people be less bad. Do you know that? Jesus came so that dead people like you and me could be made alive. He came so that blind people like you and me could have our eyes open and we could see. He came to bring about transformation in your life that goes to the very core of your being. It changes your identity and it changes your destiny. From someone who is dead and doomed to someone who is alive and has the hope of eternal life. From someone who is blind to someone who is able to see and understand spiritual truths because God has placed his spirit inside of you. And since this is the case, Paul is telling us, let us no longer live as carnal people who care only about carnal things. Rather, let us live as spiritual people who have a calling and a destiny on our lives. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that what we are unable to do in our human weakness, God has done for us through Jesus, revealing himself to us and transforming us into new creations. May we receive that good news by faith today. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.